Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good evening, Bill. Good evening, Steve. Well, what we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, Bill picks the natural history topic, <laughs> researches the science on the topic, tells me to meet him out in a natural area, and share with you everything that he learned. <laughs> so, Bill, what are we learning about today? Today, we are learning about black walnuts. Oh, and very cool. I'm going to learn, I hope, the proper way to say the genus name, because this is one of those instances, I think, where you've talked about it before, where when someone mispronounces something, it's because they've only experienced it while reading it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I'm kind of surprised with this one. I didn't realize there was multiple ways to say it. Well, I didn't realize it either until you just started talking about it in the parking lot. Oh, seriously? <laughs> okay. And I'm thinking, huh, maybe I've been saying it wrong this whole time. <laughs> I'm curious now. <laughs> <laughs> we should say first though, where we are. Uh-huh. All right, so this is the site of our infamous Bobcat episode. Oh yeah. If you haven't listened to that episode. Yeah, I'm getting PTSD already. <laughs> <laughs> Press pause on this and go listen to that episode so you can hear about Steve's trauma. Uh-huh. So we are at the Beaver Meadow Audubon Center. This is a nature center about a half an hour southeast of Buffalo. It's where I, back in the late 90s, was a resident naturalist. It was a wonderful job. This is where we do most of our bird banding during the summertime. Mm -hmm. But we are here today on a trail called the Old Homestead Trail. And we are going to stop walking right now because we are under, standing under our target species. Hmm. So we are standing in an area of black walnuts and I picked this spot specifically because there's a great story about black walnuts in my time here at Beaver Meadow. Hmm. So during the month of October, when black walnut nuts are ripe. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> Is that how people say it? <laughs> sure, why not? Okay, yeah, okay. Maybe we could say black walnuts <laughs> are ripe and they start coming down out of the trees. Oh, I thought you were saying when they nut. <laughs> like no, when no, putting, no. When they're dropping nuts or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess you could say people go nutting, right? <laughs> I guess. I think I've heard that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I guess, oh, I almost said I don't nut. <laughs> Regardless. <laughs> yeah, TMI. <laughs> In October, each year on Columbus Day weekend, there's a big event here at the Nature Center called the Enchanted Forest. Have you been to it before? So, no, I've seen the pictures. So no. it's an evening on Friday night, yeah, Saturday if you're night. you're into furries or... <laughs> <laughs> this or... predates furries. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Friday no, night? No, no, no. I apologize for even saying that because it's more of a kid's event, right? Well, well adults probably get some... It's know. for kids of all ages. Kids of all ages. Okay, that's a good way of putting it. So every night on that long weekend, in the evening, they take a section of the trail, they line it with jack-o'-lanterns, and there's usually about six stations where there's a, a costumed interpreter dressed as some kind of nocturnal animal. Mm -hmm. So people come to the center, they have face painting, live animals, lots of stuff going on in the center. But every 20 minutes or so, they take a group of 20 to 25 people out and they guide them along the trail where they stop at each station and listen to the animal quote unquote animal, give a spiel about themselves and how they fit into the mm -hmm. ecology of the woods here and in the nighttime. And you said that the, the center is full of a bunch of live animals, right. but it's also full of a bunch of dead animals, <laughs> like lining the ceiling almost. It's full of mounts, yes. <laughs> mounts, 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 not, uh, not dead or dead. We usually don't call them dead animals. <laughs> Come and see all our dead animals here. Right. <laughs> so when I worked here, I worked here for about seven years. And as the naturalist, I helped run the event. 
But then when I left here to become a teacher, I immediately signed up to be an animal because that was the most fun job at the event. And I got to be Francoise, the French beaver. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but one of my first years- Why shooting, French? I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I can tell you why, because I don't know if we've talked about uh, my friend Herb. Yeah. He was one of my mentors and he was a character, had a great sense of humor. And for some reason, whenever we'd go on camping trips, especially kayaking camping trips, he insisted on talking like a French trapper. Oh, okay. <laughs> so and, and that became a, a beaver to you. <laughs> somehow that yeah, in nice. my head, when I said, okay, I have to come up with a speech, they wanted yeah. me to be the beaver. I'm like, oh. I'm and gonna... so you got to come up with the characteristics and everything? Exactly. No, no, no. They said, Bill, you're the French beaver this year. <laughs> no. That would be awesome. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, sorry. One of my first I kind of want to go now. <laughs> one of my first years here doing the Enchanted Forest, there was a group of volunteers that they walk the trail and they make sure that the jack-o'-lanterns all stay lit so mm. people can see where they're going. They came running into the center and my job at that time was being kind of a troubleshooter. People had a problem with tickets or whatever. I tried to take care of it. And these volunteers came running in and said, we must have kids out in the woods and they're throwing rocks at the people along <laughs> a section of trail. Uh -huh. What? What are you talking about? So I had to grab a couple of volunteers, yeah. got a couple of flashlights. We came out here and we were combing the area where they said rocks were being thrown. Uh -huh. And it took us about five minutes and a nice stiff breeze to come up to realize that what was actually happening is the black walnuts were falling off of the trees. Oh my God. Onto the groups below. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so that's what was happening. It wasn't uh, teenagers yeah. out in the woods. And I don't know why they automatically assumed it was teenagers, but. <laughs> right, right. If it was one group, it has to be those teenagers. <laughs> right. I don't yeah. like the look of those teenagers. It's, just a bunch of, it's actually a bunch of old people hiding in the bushes. <laughs> so we are talking today about the Eastern black walnut. And I have always said Juglans nigra. Juglans? I've always said Juglans. How oh, would you say it? I don't know. I, I always called it Juglans. Juglans. Yeah. So who knows? Either way, I'm probably going to be referring it, referring to it as Juglans. Sure. So this is a species of deciduous tree in the walnut family, along with the hickory and pecan. Do you mm -hmm. say pecan or pecan? Oh, I, I, I switch. Yeah. <laughs> so it's native to the Midwest and Eastern Central US. We're gonna talk more about its range and how it's changed. And it's important commercially for both lumber and for the nuts we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. The heartwood is a, a deep chocolate brown. It's easily worked. And some people say that the nuts have a distinctive and desirable taste. Again, we're gonna delve more into this. Mm -hmm. But Steve, I'm sure you know this. What is black walnut most known for, would you say? What's it known for? Oh, is this sort of like a like kind of a troll answer? No, no, like... Okay, because I would say staining your hands black. That, okay. That would be one of the biggest things. All right. There's another thing I know it's kind of known for, but in comparison to the other thing that's known for this... Yes. It's not known for it. What's that? <laughs> Tapping it to make syrup. Ah, that very good, very yeah, good. Yeah, but We're... it's not known for that. <laughs> it just so happens to be one of the things you can tap that people, people do. I mean, there's a commercial industry around it. Right, right. Yeah. But I'm betting as soon as I say this, you're gonna be, you're gonna say, of course. Oh, is it gonna be more of a botanist's answer? Yes. Oh, is it gonna be the pinnate leaves and there's so many leaflets? No. no? Thinking about something growing around the base of walnut oh, trees. Oh, I already forgot the term for this, but it does have some secondary compounds that it 
that it releases into the soil to make right. it so competitors aren't shooting up at its base. So I can, I can never remember the term? exactly how to pronounce it. Allelopathy? Allelopathy. That's is. it. Yeah. So I assumed you would that would be the first thing you would come up with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you totally ruined my <laughs> intro. Sorry. <laughs> I, I jumped ahead to three different topics, though. So. That's okay. That's all right. So I, we're going to get into that. And that is actually the reason that I chose this topic. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my God, in the back of my head as I'm talking, because this was a listener-suggested topic. Oh, and they sent me down a very interesting path with this. And I feel horrible because right now I did not write down their name. So I am going to put their name in, in post-production. I will add on a little bit to the end because I want to be sure to thank this person. So we are going to get in to the allelopathy. Mm-hmm. But I feel right now we have to talk about when people hear the term walnut, I mean, everybody knows walnuts, but they're typically not thinking of the black walnut. Most people, when you say the word walnut, they picture the nut that you buy in the grocery store. I was thinking, because often you see these little tennis ball sized, like light green balls all over the ground. That's sort of what I think, because I've never bought walnuts from the store. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. And, and I used to work at a car wash too. And it's funny because you would think you don't want something that stains stuff black at a car wash, but there was walnuts everywhere, all over the ground. There was a walnut tree near there? Oh, it hung right over the property oh. where, where people were with their like power washing guns, <laughs> blasting the cars yeah, before they got in. That's bad planning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to get into a description of the leaf and the fruit and all that stuff. But I just wanted to, to point out right here at the top of the episode that the walnut that most people think of is... What is the, the scientific name of that one? What? The Persian walnut. I don't know what it is. You just said it when, before we started recording. Juglans regia. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you didn't yeah. make that connection? I, I wasn't even thinking about it because I don't think of it as something that's commercially known. I think of it as a species that, for example, uh, Juglans regia is one of those rare whole genome assemblies. That It's a chromosome level genome assembly that people like me have the, you know, fortunate, uh, you know, situation to be able to use because people have published a beautiful genome of this thing. So, so I've not, that's all I think of it as is the chromosome level assembly, not the thing that, that is really popular. So you've become one of those people so sequestered in your ivory tower. <laughs> right. Yeah. I didn't even realize that that was what Juglans Regia was. Yeah. So it's known as the Persian walnut, the English walnut. Although it's kind of funny because in Great Britain, it's also known as the common walnut. <laughs> uh, that's an old world tree species and it's native from the Balkans eastward to the Himalayas and into China. Mm-hmm. So now it's widely cultivated across Europe and Southern China. There's all these different cultivars and it's similar in size to the Eastern black walnut. The actual nut is, but English walnuts, they have thinner shells, they're easier to crack and they have a higher nut meat to shell ratio, which basically just means there's more meat per nut. So the Eastern black walnut, which we're gonna focus on, has a stronger taste. Some people say it has more fruity and musty flavors than the English walnut. Hmm. Do you think of musty and fruit? Oh, it, those are just two separate independent flavors. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> I think this is kind of like when people talk about wine. <laughs> but the, the English walnut, because of these things, it's easier yeah. to crack, it has more meat per nut. It has a broader appeal. <laughs> so we are gonna talk more though about the Eastern black walnut and that nut specifically. And I've had them before. I know what they taste like. Have you ever had Eastern black walnuts? I know I've had them, but not like I haven't collected them. It wasn't a life-changing experience, obviously. Clearly not. But let's talk about what it looks like. So 
the, we're standing next to a black walnut tree right now. I would say this one we're looking at probably what? Two feet in diameter? Oh, wow. Maybe. And there's, there's not even any buds. I don't think I see any. No, I don't, but yeah. it is le late to leaf out. Mm, it's okay. one of the last trees to leaf out around here. Now, is it wind pollinated? Because you would expect the flowers to come out first because uh, leaves kind of get in the way of pollination, so. You know what? We're gonna have to put that in the episode notes. I cannot believe I didn't find that. Hmm. Looking at the flowers, I was gonna talk more about the flowers, but I had to cut that out for time. Okay. It does have separate male and female flowers. Mm -hmm. And they're very distinctive looking and they are pretty showy. So I'm betting it's insect pollinated, mm. but I'll look that up and I'll put that into the show notes. Okay. So you are gonna skip something. You know, I go kind of wild asking <laughs> okay. stuff during episodes. So the bark is, is typically gray black, deeply furrowed into thin ridges. A lot of descriptions say it has a, a diamond shaped pattern, but this is one of the trees, as someone who's, who's taught people about trees, mm -hmm. I would say it's not super distinctive unless you're a tree nerd. Right? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, when we're identifying it now, the leaves are so, like, both the leaves and the fruit are so, you know... Distinctive. Uh, yeah, they're so distinctive that, but when you don't have those things, like right now, it does become a little bit tough, because you also hear about uh, ashes being, like, having that diamond pattern to the bark. Right. So... Like you mentioned, the fruit, the leaves are distinctive, but the leaf scars are also distinctive. Okay. We're going to talk about that. So, typically, they get... Anywhere from 70 feet to 110 feet, the tallest seem to get to be about 150 feet. Uh, the tallest one though that I could find was a national champion that was in the Smokies. That was 144 feet. That was the national champion in 06. The current national champion is in Virginia. The diameter at breast height, that's the standard measurement. I think that's what, four and a half feet? Something like that. Something like that. It's six feet, six inches in diameter. But oh, wow. It's 104 feet tall. Now, I ever knew this. Do you know how they, they calculate the national champion trees? Mm -mm. Because it's not just girth. So I found this on their website, and forgive me if I explain this wrong, but from what I could tell, they take the tree trunk circumference in inches, that's X. They take the tree height in feet, that's Y. And they take the tree's average crown spread in feet, and that's Z. Oh. And then they do X plus Y plus Z divided by four, and that equals the total points. Hmm. So they're they're combining the circumference, the height, and the crown spread to get a total number of points. I mean, as long as they're consistent, it <laughs> sounds like this is something they could stick to, so. Now, what I wanna do is I wanna try to find a branch here. I'm gonna break a branch off. Oh, now, did you bring shears with you? I did not bring shears, but mm. I brought a pocket knife because I want to show you something. One of the ways you can identify walnuts, so I'm shaving Mm -hmm. a twig lengthwise. Ah, beautiful. So we're getting to the pith, mm -hmm. the middle of the twig. And what do you notice, Steve? It is a chambered pith. Right. Yeah. It's a chambered pith. So it's broken into little sections and it's, it's dark brown. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some descriptions say light brown, but that is very characteristic of walnuts. Yeah. The whole genus. Yes. Yeah. So they have that chambered pith. Mm -hmm. So if it's the winter time, you have access to a twig, you can cut it the long way, and you can see this beautifully chambered and distinctive pit. Yeah, it's really, really nice looking. It, yeah. I think uh, the first time that I had learned that, I was actually working with someone at New York State Parks and Rec, and they showed it to me for the first time. Yeah. And it was right out of college, and it was such a cool thing. And once you see it. Oh, like, yeah. Whoa. And then look at the leaf scar. So. Oh, whoa, it's like fleur, what's that design? Fleur-de-lis. Yeah, is that what that is? 
I mean, it looks just like it though. It well, you're of... saying that because it's three lobed. Yeah. Right. Some people say it's heart shaped. It kind of. I see that. You have three groups of bundle scars, and then do you see how there's a notch at the top? Mm-hmm. There's like a V-shaped notched at the top, like you'd see in a heart shape. So when we say heart shaped, I think you're being a little generous. It's not exactly heart shaped. Yeah. But it's definitely three lobed. It's almost, it almost from my angle right now, it almost looks like a very, very thick crescent moon, but like back to back. So they're kind of pointing away from each other. Yeah. If you're into trees and want to get to know trees, a lot of times leaf scars, people will use those. And sometimes I find leaf scars are hard to remember. They're not that distinctive, but mm -hmm. for black walnuts, they definitely are distinctive. And once you see it, you're not gonna forget it. Yeah. I've heard them described as having a monkey face or a camel face. The camel face, I see a bit more than the monkey face, but I think I can also tell why they would say monkey face. Yeah. yeah. Now let's talk about the leaves though, cause you did mention them. Yeah. So I'm going to give you the job of describing the difference to our listeners. I'm sure many of them already know this, yeah. but what is the difference between a simple leaf and a compound leaf? Yeah, so a simple leaf, picture a leaf like, I guess like a maple yeah, picture or the a Canadian beech. flag. Yeah, the Canadian flag. And that leaf is just that, so if you look at the Canadian flag, that's considered a simple leaf. That is a complete whole leaf. It attaches to the twig yeah. at the stem. But a compound leaf sometimes can trick people into thinking that it's actually multiple leaves when it's actually just one. And that one leaf will could ha will have many leaflets. Yeah, sometimes there's as few as like three leaflets, like when we think of box elder, which is also a maple as as it turns out, not to make it confusing <laughs> unnecessarily. Yeah, so but box, I would say box elder is distinctive because it's a maple with yeah. a compound leaf. Yeah, with a compound leaf. And most maples have simple leaves. And it's actually, isn't it also called the ash-leaved maple? It is. Because like other maples, it's opposite. Ashes are also opposite. Yeah, so. so yeah. When we... so, also poison ivy, another one that people go for that has three leaflets, but those three leaflets are all part of one leaf. Right. Yeah. Yep. Black walnut is also distinctive because it has a pinnately compound leaf. Yeah. So it's feather pinnate. So think of a feather, you have the stem going up the middle and then lots of things coming off of that stem on either side. Yeah. So typically it could be even pinnate, which means it has an equal number on either side, but there's wide variation. One thing that you can look for in plants with compound leaves is a terminal leaflet, one leaflet on the end. The black walnut typically doesn't have that terminal leaflet. It's typically lacking, but again, it, it can be there sometimes. Mm -hmm. The leaflets, they're rounded on the base and they're long pointed with an acuminate tip. What is acuminate? Uh, <laughs> Testing your botany. Is it like tapering? Very good. Yeah. Tapering to a long point. Hey, I have not been a botanist since about 2017. Well, so. still, it's still in there. <laughs> Don't keep quizzing me though, because it's not going to happen. They do have a serrated edge and they have a slightly fuzzy underside. Now the, the whole compound leaf. Whoop. That's a duck. Aixponsa. Uh, yeah. So we have as everyone slider. knows them as, Aixponsa. Yeah. <laughs> Steve's showing up. <laughs> and I've never been an ornithologist, so. <laughs> so the leaves though are long. So oh, when yeah. you include all the leaflets, it, that one leaf can be one to two feet long. Yeah. So what do you notice like when you rub your hand along a leaf and all those leaflets, there's hmm. something distinctive. I don't know. There's an odor to it. Oh. Have you ever noticed that with no. black walnut? It has, I think it's kind of a lemony odor. Okay. Some people just refer to it as pungent or spicy, but that's also a distinctive feel mark when you find this out in the field. You know, it's funny. I uh, I do stuff like that with like spice bush, 
but I don't think I've done it with black walnut. Yep. Yeah. So it's in the leaves, the stems, and in the fruit husks. You would need a branch like this to, to be able to do it. And honestly, it's still alive. That's a, oh, the buds are there, but yeah. they're just really, they're like a very pale gray almost. The buds do have that pale gray. Is it a fuzz here. too as yep, well? That's what fuzzy. probably gives it the, the grayness. Yep. Yeah. So this branch growing almost horizontally for a good 20, 30 feet. Yeah. It's funny. We were standing right <laughs> next to these and I did not even notice that they were alive. Yep. You know, because I look at this one, there's one at the tip that's clearly, it's not doing well. So I was like, ah, eh, they're all dead. But you look closer. Oh yeah. And it looks like plenty are alive. And you wouldn't normally expect, though, to find a black walnut branch growing so right. close to the ground. I'll have to come back here in the summer when it's leaved out, and I will run my hand along its leaves. <laughs> now, let's talk about the fruit. So, as Steve already mentioned, it's spherical. Any Some people refer to it as brownish green, yellowish green. Uh, I mostly see them yellowish green, because I think they're more like a pale green, the ones that I see. I agree. It's, it's yeah. almost like a tennis ball color yeah. with the green notched up a little bit. Yeah. And... They're a semi-fleshy husk that contains a brown corrugated nut. What's so, corrugated? Corrugated? Corrugated. Think of cardboard. So oh. if you look at like the inside of the cardboard. Okay. Wavy. Lots of up and down ridges, yeah. Undulating. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> now, the whole husk, if you know it fell down out of the tree or you saw it up in a tree, it would be about, be about two to three inches across. Mm -hmm. So I would say about as big as like a racquetball. Okay. Not quite as big as a tennis ball. But the nut inside, is only about an inch to an inch and a half across. Hmm. As I already mentioned, they come down in October. Oh. What the? <laughs> so neighboring the nature center, there is a house and they're obviously shooting. A so. resident gun nut. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the fruit production is irregular. They're, they do have mast years. So that's a year when they have a, a larger than normal. Um, mast. Yep. <laughs> no, larger than normal fruit production. Right. Yeah. The fruiting can begin at four to six years, but large crops usually take about 20 years. <laughs> now, do you know if someone were to find a nut on the forest floor and it was covered in kind of a greenish yellow husk, how do you differentiate between a hickory nut and a walnut? I know you know this. Wait, a walnut versus a hickory nut? Yeah. Well, one of them is more like... Isn't there a slight, oh, the hickory has very, very clear lines that are starting to appear Sutures. in it. Okay, I, I couldn't think of the word, but I think the way they develop is actually, it's like a programmed cell death, but like in very particular patterns that make this uh, weird line. I could be wrong about that, but I thought I'd read that at some point. So the, the hickory- Because eventually they do- Open up. Yeah. Right. So and at those seams is where they will crack apart. Is that dehiscence, right? Dehiscence. So, you know, hickory nuts, if you pick it up, the husk on the outside has very clear lines dividing it into sections. Yeah. Whereas a walnut, it's all just one- Just a complete, ball. Yeah, yeah, just a ball. Yeah. Really. Now, we should say that in your neck of the woods, you can have black walnuts, but you might also have a close relative, Juglan cinera. Butternut? Very good, the yeah. butternut. So they're very similar in leaf shape and their ranges overlap significantly. Oh, and Steve just found a walnut that has been chewed, probably mm -hmm. by squirrels, right? Yeah. So this is a nut probably from last year. Now that I'm looking down, I can see a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Now, folks, I do gotta say, one of the things I told people for many years when I worked here, because it was a great story and I wanted it to be true, <laughs> was that very often walking along this trail in the fall, looking up the black walnuts, you would see 
black walnuts in their husks tucked into the upper crotches of the limbs along the trunk. Or you just see them out in the branches tucked in. And someone tucked told in. me- Wait, what do you mean by tucked in? So anywhere there was a, a V mm-hmm. and it was angled at the correct angle, a so black you, walnut would be resting there. Oh, so you think the, the tree's like catching its own walnuts that are falling? Well, so- I say, th- this is the story you were telling. Someone told me that yeah. what squirrels do is they take the black walnuts and they put them in those crotches up in the tree to dry. Hmm. And then once the walnuts are dry, then they take them into their tree cavities and they store them for the winter time. Because if hmm. they fall on the ground, chances are that they're gonna rot. Okay. I so, could find so, nothing to back that I say, up. If it's true, they must be really wedging them in there. <laughs> in fact, here, actually, you know what? Here's a game we're gonna do. <laughs> no, no, but what you have there, that's a walnut that's that's old. Oh, yeah, uh, there's not the fleshy part that would probably right. dent in a little bit to get it to stick. I did get it to stick, by the way. It so, just wasn't in there that well. So Steve, Steve picked an old walnut from last year out of its husk <laughs> that's been chewed by squirrels and tucked it into the crotch of a, a tree. Yeah, I didn't just place it there. It, I was wondering how easy it would be to kind of squeeze in there into that little, you know, V. And it was easier than I actually thought, but but still, I'm not using the same thing apparently in the story the squirrels are using. Right. So if anybody out there does have some documentation backing <laughs> up that squirrels engage in this behavior and that it actually works, because it makes sense, but does not mean it's true. But, yeah, totally. Yeah. But it was a good story. I mean, I feel like it's... Uh... It shouldn't be that hard to find a squirrel doing it. Like, but you would really have to invest your time in waiting at the tree with a camera. Right, but I would think if this is an established behavior, it would be out there somewhere. Yeah. I, I spent a good portion of time trying to research, does this actually happen? Also, do squirrels pluck them right off the tree? Or Why do not? they grab them from the ground? Or do they grab them from the ground, climb up, and then do it? I, w- I don't know. I don't know either. So we were talking about the butternut though. Oh, I also, I'm saying it as if it's true. We don't even know that it's happening. We don't. And I'm saying, if it's true, I wonder what they're doing. Plucking them or... And if they're doing this, they could be doing it with butternuts too. Yeah. So butternuts are similar to Eastern black walnuts. Are they slightly more like elongated or something? They're oblong. They're more more football shaped. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I almost said that about the hickory. I came so close saying, I'm like, isn't it more football shape? But then I, something popped into my head the last second. I'm like, I think there's the sutures. Is that what you said? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So the butternut, Juglancinera, it has very similar habits to the Eastern black walnut. Hmm. So its nuts are going to come down in October, yeah. into November. They're going to be similar in color. They're just going to be longer. And the leaf scars on a black, or I'm sorry, on a butternut look similar, mm-hmm. but they have a furry ridge at the top. Instead of that V-shaped notch, okay. they have a furry ridge. So they look like a camel face or a monkey face with a fuzzy eyebrow. With a unibrow. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Nice. So again, very distinctive, something to look for. Hmm. And according to Peterson, according to the Peterson guide, mm-hmm. these, the walnuts are the only plants with compound leaves and chambered pits. Okay. So. Yeah. Do you have any other examples of chambered pits by chance? Just besides the walnuts. Yeah, it's such a big thing for naturalists to hear about walnuts. Right. Or I shouldn't say naturalists, botanists as well, because when I was doing botany work, we also did that. Because I know pits sometimes can be important. Of course, you're unfortunately, you have to damage the the plant to to get at it, but there's even certain species of, what are we looking at? Honeysuckle? There's honeysuckle that 
the pith is either hollow or it's filled in. Right. And I think the hollow ones might be non-native for one reason or another, and the, the filled in ones are native. I believe that that's the pattern, but... I gotta imagine there's something else out there with a chambered pith, but, yeah. you know, just in terms of the diversity that's out there, but I'll look that right. up. I'll put that in the show notes. But but I should say, botanist, if there's any botanist listening, I know that's probably not how you're identifying <laughs> the honeysuckle, but or even the Juglans nigra, but Field it's one thing, one possible field mark. There's many, many others in terms of flora, right. keys, uh, things you like that. You should never use one thing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So the lifespan of these guys, it was funny because it varies widely according to sources. Uh-huh. I saw everything from 150 to 250. Hmm. But you got to be careful. There is a lot of misinformation about walnuts out there. Mm-hmm. I found a couple of websites that said they top out at 130. Oh. But that, this is a hardwood tree. There's no way they're going to top out at 130 for their yeah. maximum lifespan. I was say, aren't there relatively short-lived, like tall, woody trees, though? Well, I mean, because I aspen. think there's there's some only that, that get to only like 100 or something. Like a lot of the poplars, but okay. they grow very fast. Okay. Okay. So they're going to achieve that height much more quickly mm. than something like a walnut or a maple will. Hmm. So these guys aren't going to live as long as as maples or oaks, but definitely longer than 130. So. Usually these guys guys are found along roadsides, fields, and forest edges. Hey, uh, we're along a, side, a road right we now. Are. <laughs> but these black walnuts here were probably planted. Mm-hmm. This is called the old homestead trail because not too far away there is the foundation of a, yeah. a farmhouse that was here. So these walnuts were probably planted so, by the farmer. So even though these were planted, I take it walnuts require maybe full sun, they like edge habitat. Oh, very good. So I was just going to say, they're classified as shade intolerant. Yeah, I mean, that's what you would imagine from something that like ed- that likes edges. So. No, they can survive in mixed forests, mm. but if they are going to, they need to be one of the dominant species. Okay, yeah. So they can survive in relatively light shade, but if you want optimal growth and nut production, they really do require full sun. You know what? I wonder, I almost made the joke of, you know, move over ashes, <laughs> walnuts, <laughs> we here have, we come. We have something nuttier. But, but here's the thing. Ashes are actually a pretty big part of the forest makeup. Now. So I'm wondering if it's going to be making sort of artificial edge habitats all throughout the woods a little bit, just opening up light. I wonder if it would, because I mean, it's such a fast change. It's like you're reading my mind. Oh, okay. Or, or reading my notes here. <laughs> I'm like peeking over at your notes. But you're not. You're just I'm not. good. You're good. Their numbers are increasing. Black walnut, the range is increasing because of epidemics in other tree species. Wow. Like the emerald ash borer, chestnut blight. There's a a canker that's affecting butternuts, the woolly hemlock adelgid. All of these are freeing up space for black walnuts to grow. Right, but this isn't going to be like a permanent habitat for them because eventually they're going to get outcompeted after enough time anyway. Right. And it's It's cool to see succession though. If you've, you've been near any places that like, for example, I went up to my friend Jim's cabin at one point. He was, it was a wedding years and years ago. And we were actually watching succession in action. Like there were a bunch of uh, like evergreen trees and the hardwoods were growing up right through them. In fact, a few of them, the hardwoods were only like a few feet taller at that point, but they were like really encroaching on their light. Uh, yeah, it was cool, cool to see. You could see it happen. Yeah. Now, the range of, of these guys, I mentioned how they're found in the, the east and the Midwest. But I always just kind of figured black walnuts were just kind of scattered throughout the landscape. But the range is not as as big as I thought. Like here in New York State, Mm -hmm. 
They're only in kind of patches throughout central and western New York. Mm -hmm. um, there's some down in, in southern New York State, but like up in the Adirondacks, northern part of New York <laughs> State, they're almost completely absent. Huh, do, really, do they need decent soils or something? No, what oh. it is, is the frost-free time is just too short once you get up near the Canadian border. Oh. Like if you look on USDA plants, there are no records of black walnuts in Vermont. Yeah. They're found in like one county in New Hampshire, one county in Maine. Hmm. So they're kind of absent from that border, except Southern Ontario, because Southern Ontario hmm. kind of dips down Interesting. Low. Well, I know the general range of juglins is pretty big. Hmm. Like I think it goes all the way from like Southeastern Canada all the way to California and then all the right. way down to like the tips of South America and Argentina. So it's a pretty wide range, but that's not black walnut. That's also like butternut and there's some other species. And we're going to talk about some of the yeah. other species. Right, right. So it doesn't really occur, as I mentioned, in that northern tier of the eastern U.S. because the frost-free <laughs> season's too short for the nuts to develop. And then the western range, it extends to about the eastern Great Plains because beyond that, the conditions just become too dry. Okay, so... This is black walnut, because I, I was saying Correct. walnuts in general can extend all the way out to California, but not black walnut. Right. Yeah. But let's talk about the taxonomy now and some of the other species. Yeah. So do you know what family it's in? Uh, it's it's named. I mean, the family is kind of named for it. It's all named together. It's right. a Juglandaceae. Juglandaceae. Or how would you say it? I would say... Juglandaceae. <laughs> I don't know how you were saying it. Glands. Juglandaceae. Juglandaceae. <laughs> yeah. Juglandaceae. Juglins. But whatever yeah. it is, yeah. it's a long in the family along with the hickories and the pecans. Yep. Now let's talk about the genus, juglans or juglans. Juglans, yeah. <laughs> Besides the black walnut, the other North American walnuts, there's two called the California walnut. There's the Southern California walnut and the Northern California walnut. There's the Arizona walnut. And there's one called the little walnut. The little walnut. And that uh, scientific name is juglans microcarpa, which is pretty cute. Carpa, cool. carpa, carpa. What does carpa mean? Carpal? No, is carpa. It the carpal? Nah, carpa. Gonna have to put it in the episode notes. Well, because I, there was also another pseudocarpa or something. I don't know. I can't think of it. I, there's another plant with a really similar name, and I used to know what that one meant, but it's all going. It's, it's all going, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so as we mentioned, they all have chambered pits. Now this genus isn't real big. There's about 20 species worldwide. Yeah. And as you mentioned. 16 are in the New World. Oh, yes, it's mostly a New World, but there are some Old World there's, species, even in Japan, maybe? Four that are Asian. Asian, okay, yep. Asian. So yeah. Four that are Asian species. Now, the surprising thing that I've found is the nuts are not an especially widespread food in terms of the numbers of species that eat them. Hmm. So, obviously, we know squirrels and lots of other rodents eat them, and it is a big food of especially fox squirrels and gray squirrels. Oof. And then woodpeckers do eat them. Um, the leaves are eaten by white-tailed deer, but they're not a preferred food. I mean, I would never consider them a preferred food because it's a tall, woody tree with... But I would just figure that nut is such a high-protein food that yeah. you'd think a lot of other animals would be feeding on it, but it was surprising that I could not find at least a lot of mammals <laughs> and birds. I'm realizing right now that I'm talking that I committed a, a cardinal sin. I did not look in Eastman. Because oh. Eastman would talk a lot about the insects that use. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that is one thing. I'll have to do that in part two of Black Walnuts. <laughs> but I do have to say, did you ever see the book, A Guide to Wildlife Food Habits? It's a book, nope. they, they haven't changed the cover since it was 
first printed in the 50s. So it looks very old school, but it's it assembles all this data on which mammals and birds are using all these common plants in North America. Oh, that sounds like a cool book. So you it's separated into one section that has mammals and birds and it'll show what plants are their, like their chief foods. Yeah. And then the other half is botanical and it's broken into the trees and shrubs and what animals are the chief users of those trees and shrubs. Hmm. So it's called A Guide, Guide to Wildlife Food Habits by Martin Zim and Nelson. It's a book I refer to a lot. Hmm. And the information is, is somewhat out of date in terms of the data they're using is pretty old, but right. I mean, a lot of it's still gotta be valid, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, what's the chance that, uh, it, there's probably just gonna be more information, right? Because animals probably aren't gonna change too much about their eating habits. Now, let's talk about the uses. Okay. okay? So we're gonna talk about the nuts as food, obviously, but one thing that I came across that, again, I told people a lot about and I looked into to see if this is true, but a lot of accounts of black walnut will say that the bruised nut husks, so that green outer skin that's peeled off to get to the nut, mm -hmm. that people would take those, kind of squash them up, bruise them, and they would throw them into water and that it would kill or paralyze fish. And that oh. you could just pick the fish up with your hand. I've heard of this before, that there's certain herbs or whatever that you would throw into a some water and it would kill the fish. Right. Now, it's often said that this was a Native American custom. Yeah. So I looked this up and someone did do a study and oh. they did find that this did happen. Wow. Uh, so they said in this study, they said the 96 hour LC50 value. So that's a lethal concentration. Okay. LC50 means lethal concentration that will kill half of the study population. Okay. It ranged from 27 to 88 parts per billion. So that's, there's a chemical mm -hmm. in there, juglone. Juglone, okay. okay. And that is the chemical that um, the allelopathic qualities have been attributed to, killing other plants. We're gonna talk more about that. Okay. It's, it's funny, you said that and my brain crossed wires for a second and I'm like, I thought you were going homeopathic instead of alleliopathic. <laughs> no, no, we're not going yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when we talk about things in small concentrations, my brain sometimes also goes, goes there. To so, homeopathy. Yeah, yeah. So it killed rainbow trout, northern pike, goldfish, black bullheads, catfish, and bluegills. And there were a couple other species wow. that they used. Now, if it's anything like the goldfish that I got at the fair when I was a kid, they were going to die anyway. <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> now, accounts that I've read did say sometimes, some account says it paralyzes the fish and you can just pick them up though they're still alive. Others say uh -huh. it kills. In this study, it did kill the fish. I tried to find some kind of reference for, well, what does 27 to 88 parts per billion really mean? Right. I don't really know that. Like, like I want to think about it in terms of drops of food coloring. Right. <laughs> That's what I want to know. I mean, that seems like a really low concentration to You would me. think, yeah. But I do have to mention that in, I have a really old edition of Peterson trees in my mm -hmm. office. Mm -hmm. And I flipped to the black walnut and it referenced this, the husks were used to kill fish for food. And it said, but this is now illegal and unsportsmanlike. Oh. I thought, well, that's kind of a weird thing to say. And it just, it like <laughs> caught me as kind of like, well, that's a weird value judgment to throw on there. Right. So then I looked in the new edition yeah. that I have in my car and they took that unsportsmanlike comment out. What? It just says it's illegal. It's now illegal. Oh, okay. <laughs> So I just thought that was just an interesting hurt, thing. Hurt, hurt too many hunters' feelings, yeah, I guess. I guess. So. <laughs> so you mentioned yeah. that it's tapped in spring yeah. to get the sweet sap and you boil the sap down. 
The sap can be drunk or concentrated into syrup or sugar, and it's not unlike the sap of sugar maple. Real missed opportunity, Bill. You could have come here with some syrup to share. No way. I do. No way. Look. <laughs> Why are we on the same wavelength? Today? <laughs> I don't believe in wavelengths or anything like that, but I mean, there are wavelengths, but in the way I'm using it, I don't believe in it, but it's amazing. Why are we saying and thinking the same stuff? That's crazy. I have in my hands, folks, a little bottle that I ordered online wow. of black walnut syrup, and Steve is going to try it. But yeah, I'm I guess gonna, so. I'm going to try it, or no, you're going to try it first because I had COVID last week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I apologize, folks, if I uh, cough. I'll I'll take a little bit. Oh, just, well, I'll just yeah, drink. Let's see. Take a swig. What does it taste like? Wow. So I currently have real maple syrup at home. It's what we bought two different ones, real maple syrup with some vanilla flavor and then the, just the regular real vanilla, real maple syrup. I like this better and it's hard to describe whatever that extra flavor is in there, but I kind of totally prefer this over the, the real maple syrup that I've been drinking lately. Or no, I haven't been drinking it. <laughs> that <laughs> but, you've been using If it. my doctor's listening, I have not been drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> so. Wow, that's good. Isn't that good? Yeah, it's like a, there's something r extra rich about it or yeah, something. Little, yeah, would you say earthy? I don't know. <laughs> like a richer flavor, it's hard to describe. Right, right, right. It's pretty tough to describe, but the flavor's there. That's a really, really good. I guess you could say it has uh, walnut notes in it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> right? Probably, yeah. So folks, you can order this online. I'd say check it out. And I did because I knew we were going to have a hard time describing this. I had my wife and my daughter try it. Yeah. And it's obviously different from maple syrup. Like if right. someone just gave this to you, it looks like maple syrup. If you tasted it, you'd be mm -hmm. like, something's up with this. I mean, it almost, it might even look darker than maple syrup too. Yes. Now that could be mm. something to do with the, the boiling process. Cause sometimes okay. how you boil it can cause it to be darker. But the ratio is about yeah. the same, about 40 gallons of sap hmm. to one gallon of syrup. But one thing I did read is that each tree and each tap produces much less sap than a maple. I figured it had to be something. Yeah. So this bottle, which was is just a couple ounces, right? This was fifteen dollars. Wow. So okay. it's more expensive because you just have to tap a lot more trees to get the same amount that you would for maple. Yeah, I bought so the maple syrup I bought. I bet there's at least anywhere from there might even be ten times more maple syrup than what's in there, and it was I think it was probably like seven ninety nine or something. Right. So wow. Yeah. So you're not gonna to wanna to use it like you use maple syrup. Yeah. But I did uh, find a good description that someone who wrote uh, a webpage about how to boil maple, black walnut sap yeah. to get black walnut syrup. I hope it's as convoluted as a wine review. It's dry and pleasantly punctual and... Nope. <laughs> this is much more metaphorical. This sure, says, sure, okay. If maple syrup was the violin in a string quartet, I would characterize black walnut syrup as the cello. Oh my God, I almost said, I was, I so regret not saying it. Cause I was, did you see me kind of like, I was winding up to say something. Yes. And I was like, it would be rude if Bill said like, I don't know, like trumpet and I said cello. <laughs> it just might sound rude on mic or something. But I so wish I had said it now. Cause that's what I was, it was on the tip of my tongue. I was so ready to, to say it with you. We uh, want to be real, so we're not going to re-record that. Yeah, we can't, we can't. <laughs> so uh, I said it's like the cello because it's a bit deeper and more complex. Yeah. And I think that's a good description. Yeah, it is. It's a good metaphor for a flavor. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the nuts and just the nuts themselves. Now, did you know they're shelled commercially in the U.S.? No, I, yeah. I mean, I assume that it would be because so much of its range is in the U.S. Now, so. about 65% of the annual wild harvest is concentrated just in the state of Missouri. Missouri seems <laughs> to 
have a high concentration of black walnut trees. And people do put them on ice cream, baked goods, and other sweet confections. I think what like a, gr ground up or something? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, a sin. I do not put what? walnuts on. Walnuts do not belong in cookies or ice cream. That is my own personal opinion. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I've never loved walnuts in a cookie, but I don't mind them. In fact, sometimes the more complex like a cookie is, like I would much rather have like an oatmeal chocolate chip than a chocolate chip. That's because you're- that, Is that why? <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, so if you wanted to harvest black walnuts, and again, mentioning my friend Herb, yeah. um, I would collect them with him. He had several sites that in the fall, he would drive around to and collect five gallon buckets full of these <laughs> things and cure them. So when you pick them up, you'd want to pick one, ones that are mostly green to brown. You'd want to avoid black, moldy, or rotten nuts, obviously, that look like they've oh, been avoid, on... avoid the moldy ones. Okay. <laughs> I had to, got to point that out. Yeah. <laughs> ones that they just look like they've been on the ground a while. Right, right. And you got to remove the outer husk. And that ain't easy. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever tried to? I have, but not to actually get the whole husk off. I was curious about the staining. Yeah. Yeah, the finger so, staining. So. I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, trying to remove that husk it's not only difficult, it does stain your hands. It's like a yellowish liquid that comes out, but your hands get a black stain on them. Right. So whatever chemical reaction's happening, it's kind of cool. <laughs> so if you're gonna do this, first you wanna check the hardness of the hull. Uh, a good trick that you could do is put your fingernail into it. If it doesn't dent easily, it's not ready. You wanna set it aside to soften for a few days. <laughs> kind of the simplest way, if you're not gonna do a lot of them, when I would take people on hikes and wanna show them a nut, yeah. I would put the husk the nut in the husk on the ground and roll it under my foot, pushing hmm. down hard, and that would roll the husk off. Oh, really? And then I could pick up the nut and show it to them. Hmm. I kind of wish there was one right here because I'd want to see you do that. We're at the wrong time. Yeah, right? I know. <laughs> We're out here in May, folks, early May. But this is always, I like these kinds of episodes because it prepares people for when they come yeah, across that's true. some that's true. Uh, yeah, some walnuts. But looking online, it's amazing the contraptions that people come up with. I saw one person, a serious husker that used a car tire rotating against a metal mesh. Oh. So we had this cup-like metal mesh filled with black walnuts in their husks, and then you had a car jacked up on a tire, or up on a jack, and the car tire was rotating the nuts against the mesh, removing oh. the husks. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Some people take a thick board, and they drill a hole in it about one to two inches in diameter, and then they smash the nut through with a hammer. Mm -hmm. The husk remains behind and the nut comes out on the other side. Yeah. Lots of different But methods. the coolest way is when you, you just put a, a pinprick in one side and then a little in the other, and you kind of blow it out like <laughs> like, like people do with eggs. Uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Steve likes to blow his nuts. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you could try that one, Steve. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, so... Oh, is this that sophomoric humor <laughs> that one of our reviewers <laughs> was talking about? <laughs> yeah. It would make our delivery better if we said fewer things like that, I guess. <laughs> Probably would. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So whatever way you use to get the husk off, <laughs> Steve's method or other methods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or a more realistic method. <laughs> you want to wash and scrub the hulled nuts. So some people use a power washer. Mm. Some people put their, their husked nuts into a five-gallon bucket, fill it with water, and then they use a broom handle and they just agitate it. Oh. You just want to remove all the little bits that are in the cracks right, of the, the right. nut, that corrugated shell. Churning walnuts. So, <laughs> churning walnuts. <laughs> There's so many ways we could go with that. I know, I know. So a lot of accounts online or in books will say that if any nuts float, you want to discard them. Hmm. But I actually came across someone who's been 
doing this for decades, and they said that a few years in a row, they took all the ones that float, opened them up, and they actually found that only about 10% of the floating ones are rotten or not ripe. So we said it's actually worth it to keep processing those. Uh, how much, what percentage of the sinking ones were? were Almost 100%. Yeah, must, must have been 100, yeah. I guess, would have been so fine. Once you've removed the husk, once you've washed them, then you wanna lay them out somewhere to dry, usually somewhere dark and cool, out of sunlight for at least two to three weeks, although some accounts do say up to six weeks. Herb did it for about a month. Hmm. And then you wanna test to check them if they're finished curing. You can pick one, a nut up and shake it. If you hear the nut rattling in its shell, that's a good sign, because obviously it's dried some. Right. You wanna crack it and taste it. And if the shells are brittle and the nut meat is firm, then they are cured. Hmm. Now, as I already said, the shell is a lot thicker than that of the English walnut. Those internal walls are a lot thicker and they tightly surround the nut meat. The Eastern black walnut is way too tough and too large to be open with a standard nutcracker. Hmm. Now, you could say, all right, well, I'm just gonna smash this open with a rock, but you're just gonna smash the nut meats so it needs care and skill, and it is still nearly impossible to extract an intact half of walnut from wow. inside an Eastern black walnut. So. Because of this, there's a number of home walnut cracking devices that have been produced. If you look online, hmm. people have created a lot of these homemade devices. Gosh, I, I'm just picturing the, the metal one that just yeah. pinches. I feel like I always held those wrong. I feel like I would end up like breaking a finger or something. Or... If you tried to use a standard nutcracker, yeah. you would break the nutcracker. Okay. Trying to yeah. open one of these. Wow. So I found one online that has lots of great reviews. I'll link to it. It's called the Get Kraken Nutcracker, <laughs> but it's $75. Wow, holy cow. But a lot of the reviews do say that it does seem to work well at cracking yeah. black walnut. And believe it or not, it's a tire and a metal nest. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 just, that's for removing the husk. <laughs> oh. Now, one thing that I never heard about, but this, again, it seems to be more common in the Midwest. There are in the fall, these black walnut collecting stations where people yeah. collect black walnuts, bring them to these stations and the stations will hull them and shell them hmm. for selling. There's about 200 stations just from one company called Hammonds. But just to give you an idea of hmm. how popular black walnuts are in Missouri, out of the 200 stations in the Midwest, yeah. 93 of them are in Missouri. Oh, wow. So almost yeah. half of them. The next closest one is Kentucky has about 22 of them. There's some in Ohio. <laughs> And the last season, the fall of 2021, for 100 pounds of black walnuts, you would get $18. Hmm. So, I, wow. which seems like 100 pounds sounds like a lot, but if you pick up a black walnut, I don't think it would take you that long to collect 100 pounds, maybe an hour or two. Yeah, so, maybe, I don't know. I mean, hey, it's still, you'd, you'd make more working at Aldi, but um, <laughs> 18 bucks. Hard to beat, hard right. to beat, Aldi. Yeah, you're outside, yeah. Hey. So, Again, while the flavor of the black walnut is prized by some, I was never a fan of, of black <laughs> walnut, but the difficulty in uh, husking it, in shelling it, yeah, and just, it may have to do with the wider popularity of the English walnut. Right? Yeah, I wonder if husking, you know, collecting, husking, you know, shelling black walnuts, maybe that's like a weight loss program or something. Cause I, I almost have a feeling that you would use a lot more energy doing that than you'd get out of the nut. <laughs> probably, probably. And again, I don't want to, you know, hate on black walnuts. I'm sure there's lots of people out yeah. there that love them. I enjoyed going out and collecting them with Herb and curing them and going through the whole process. But yeah. I, the first time I tried one, I was like, that's it? That's <gasps> I just thought that's of something. That's what we did all that for? So one of my favorite movies growing up was Jackie Chan's 
Drunken Master. Well, I actually like the sequel more, Legend of Drunken Master, but I think in Drunken Master, it's much more of a martial arts movie. Like, it looks much older, really old school. How are you going to get this back to Black Walnut? I think he used a Black Walnut in the training to strengthen his fingers. And by the end, like by the time he had mastered drunken boxing, oh, he no. could crush a black walnut with his fingers. But I didn't mean to say black walnut because maybe it's an English walnut. They're much thinner. So maybe, who knows, maybe it's possible to or crush them. Or one of him. the Asian species. Or, or one of the, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Probably, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so there's lots of other uses. There's industrial uses for the shells, polishing. Uh, it's used as a thickener in paints and plastics. Hmm. It's even used as a filler in explosives. Oh. The dye, we could talk about the dye, but I am looking at our time, and I wanna save enough time for talking about allelopathy. So I'm gonna s- skip over the dye stuff right now and jump ahead to a message from our sponsor, <laughs> which is Gumleaf USA. Oh, very nice, dude. Yeah. So we want to take a short break from the episode to tell you guys about the sponsor, which is Gunleaf USA. This company makes high quality, super comfortable, handmade tall rubber boots. They're crafted for comfort and function. And, you know, Bill's sporting some right now. I I'm think they look right pretty now. good. Hang on. I'm going to do the, the Royal Zip. Oh, you ready? Let's hear it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the zipper didn't get stuck. There's a tightener strap that he had to go around. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're 100% waterproof, they're durable, and made with 85% real rubber, so you don't have to worry about them cracking. They have styles for both men and women, and they're great for birding, botanizing, or any outdoor activity. So if you're interested in high-quality tall rubber boots, we recommend visiting gumleafusa.com and explore their products. It's also a great way to support the podcast, so we could do cooler things. So you guys can look for a link in the episode notes and on our website. And also, for patrons of the podcast, you guys get free shipping. So all you have to do is go to our Patreon page and look for a code that's hidden unless you're a patron of the podcast. Right. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to talk about the wood next. As I already mentioned, it's highly prized. It's dark colored, straight grained, and it's heartwood. It's heavy and strong. And historically, it was used for things like gun stocks, furniture, paddles, and even coffins. No. <laughs> Due to its value, forestry officials, believe this or not, they're often called on to track down walnut poachers. So, yeah. Hmm. In 2004, Purdue University researchers, they solved the case of a stolen black walnut tree <laughs> by using DNA analysis to wow. match two logs that were sold to a lumber mill to a tree stump more than 60 miles away. That's amazing. So it involved a tree 55 feet high, which isn't really that tall. Right. But that 55-foot tree was worth $2,500. Wow. So, yeah, very valuable lumber. Yeah, the the reveal was really tacky, though. It was like uh, on Jerry Springer. They're like, you are not the tree (laughs) because they do the dna test no you are the tree (laughs) and then (laughs) which i mean it's the same process so yeah yeah sure yeah all right now we're going to talk about allelopathy i've been saving this because i feel like i'm going to blow a lot of people's minds oh boy including steve's yeah i'm ready for it now before i do that though i just have to mention quick and define a term here do you know what cooperative extensions are no all right. Sounds like a business thing. You've heard about it, though, right? N- no. Have you heard of the Cornell Cooperative Extension? Oh, it is a business thing. Well, <laughs> kind of. Okay, no, I haven't heard of it, actually. It's more of an academic thing. Okay. So I've heard about it a lot just from working here at the Nature Center, mm. just kind of 
volunteering and being involved in, in, in the naturalist community, gardening community, you often hear people talk about cooperative extension. And like here in Western New York, we have master gardeners that are trained by the Cornell Cooperative Extension, Cornell University. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Oh, so I knew that there was like master gardener courses and you can get your what degree or whatever that is, well, but is that the same certified. thing? Certified, that's what I meant. Now, yeah. there may be other master gardener courses or programs, but okay. there is one offered through Cooperative Extension. Okay. So I had heard about this thing for years. I knew Cornell was involved with it here in New York and that they worked with farmers and with gardeners. But for whatever reason, I just it was always just kind of in the background. Mm -hmm. So I did look it up. And this was actually something created by Congress in 1914. And it established a partnership between an agricultural college in every state and the USDA. And the <laughs> whole point of it was to use colleges to research the latest and most efficient farming methods okay. to disseminate that information to farmers. <laughs> so in every state, there's a cooperative extension that's attached to some university in that state. And they work with farmers, landowners, gardeners. Interesting. To really use the latest research for agriculture or gardening or whatever. So I take it Cornell is New York's? Correct. Yeah. Yes. So I'm saying that because referring to cooperative extensions, it's going to come up a lot talking about allelopathy and black walnut. <laughs> now, I've just realized I may end up changing something in this in post because I just realized at the top of the episode, we mentioned allelopathy and we never defined it. Yeah. Which bothers me. So I may go <laughs> you, back in. Maybe you were just planting the seed, getting them used to the word before you reveal what it is. So tell people what it, it is. It's kind of like uh, all those, the hundred Doctor Strange trailers that they've been <laughs> popping up lately. Right. I just want to see the movie, There's man. I don't want to see a hundred trailers for it. <laughs> but I feel we didn't even give enough <laughs> right. to right. be a trailer. At the Aleliopathy beginning. spelled, uh, no. <laughs> so what is it though? Tell people what it so is. So Aleliopathy, well, you know what? I mean, I no, I did describe it in the beginning. I said it's when a plant will produce chemicals that it'll kind of feed into the soil in All some right. way. And then whether that's through, maybe it could be, well, I assume it's mostly through the roots, but I assume it could also be like leaching off of the leaves or- It can. Yeah. So there's, there's several different methods. But, but either way, what I'd said in the beginning of the episode was that it kind of stops competing plant life from growing underneath it. Because obviously you probably either want your young to be growing underneath you, or you want to just keep surviving and creating more progeny. So, right. yeah. Now, so as you said, in the simplest sense, it's one plant species affecting the growth of another, yeah. usually through chemical substances. Now, early on, it was narrowly defined as just the influence of living plants on other living plants. Mm. But since then, it's been expanded to include interactions within the soil environment. So it could come through decaying plant material. Right. That's kind, of, that's kind of what I was thinking with leaf litter. Because yeah, right. with leaf litter, you could almost imagine the soil absorbing a lot of that that tea <laughs> that, that when the water is being poured you know how rain no 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 it's a tea it's a tea and that's how we're going to think about it All right. yeah and that the soil has a lot of this leaf tea in it and that may have compounds in it that uh help the next generation of that plant grow or something that particular plant that particular species yeah but i didn't really think about this until i started researching this episode there can be negative allelopathy, which people think usually think of, or there's positive allelopathy. Mm. So that's often, that term, positive allelopathy, is often used in agricultural senses. Think about cover crops. Yeah. Those are planted often for weed suppression. Okay. Or to enrich soil, right? So allelopathy isn't just 
one plant harming another plant, right? I know something about some species of walnut that was in a study. Yeah. I wonder if you have a similar thing that, so walnut is a fabid. It's a, so it's, it's in a group that's related to peas and stuff. Okay. So the fabids have two different main clades. There's the comclade, which I, I'm not going to describe that, but it has like the oxalidales in it and stuff. But there's also the nitrogen fixing clade. Those are the two clades within the fabids. Like clover. Yeah, right. So I read, I wasn't researching for this episode. I didn't read a study on this. It was just something I had kind of stumbled across that when black walnut are grown alongside other members of the nitrogen fixing clade, like some species of like allness, like alder, things like that, they, it was something like there was a 30% increase in height and growth. Oh, okay. So that must positively lipathy, but that's more like, I think that's because it's a nitrogen fixing species. So here you're getting into the difficulty of determining allelopathy in natural settings. So, yeah, see, it seems because complicated. Yeah. It's so hard to remove other factors because if you're saying this plant is negatively or positively affecting this other plant that's growing near it, you have to remove, well, is this just competition for water and nutrients? Is it soil microbial activity? Other environmental conditions that are causing this interaction? Hmm. Is it definitely some chemical being exuded from one plant and impacting another? It's very yeah. hard to make that determination. In the really small paragraph that I read, mm -hmm. it sounded like they had planted them together. So they must have had a plot. And this is me, this is where I went mentally. Sure. When I when I was reading the paragraph, I'm like, oh, they must have had one plot where they did it without the other nitrogen uh, fixing uh, fabids, and then another plot where they did it just with the um, right. juglins. But wouldn't you agree though that the only thing they could really say is these plants when grown together, this thing happens. Sh sure, I mean, there's a lot of factors for sure. Right, yeah. there's a lot of, and especially in a natural setting versus a lab setting, Yeah. Right? like a, a greenhouse even. Right, right. So one of the most well-known allelopathic plants is arguably Eastern black walnut. <laughs> and the chemical that's often termed responsible for black walnut harming other plants is juglone. Okay. okay. So everyone, quote unquote, knows that black walnut is allelopathic and symptoms of juglone poisoning include foliar yellowing and wilting. And a number of plants are said to be particularly sensitive. Things like apples, tomatoes, pines, and birch. A oh. lot of sites will say you should not plant these things in proximity. So this is woody. We're thinking of woody competition. What about tomatoes though? <laughs> right? Shoot. Yeah. <laughs> So, Sorry, guys, don't know what a tomato is. <laughs> we'll let that slide. Yeah, 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 yeah. The woody tree, tomato, solanum, lyco, whatever it is. A lot of people, yeah. a lot of sources will even say that after, even after a black walnut tree is removed, the soil, the soil will still contain to glow in for several years after as the decaying roots will release it. I would imagine so. It Does it have negative effects on its own seed? Depends what you're reading. Okay. All right. But... Records of walnut toxicity, they go as far back as the first century. Hmm. Pliny the Elder wrote, the shadow of walnut trees is poison to all plants within its compass. So <laughs> initially- Wow, I never really thought I'd hear Pliny the Elder <laughs> again. Right? Yeah, I actually think he came up in another episode because of taxonomy purposes too. Right. Yeah. Now initially, injury to other plants was attributed to the dense, dense shade and extensive root system. Mm -hmm. But in the last 100 years, it shifted to claims of chemical poisoning. So in the 1920s, 
damage to tomatoes and other crops near walnut trees caused people to believe that toxic chemicals were involved. But you had many farmers with fields near walnut orchards and they saw no negative effects on their crops. <laughs> but public perception that walnut trees would kill other plants persisted and grew, especially when there was a researcher in Virginia that noticed his garden tomatoes were struggling and he correlated a nearby black walnut with the damage he observed. <laughs> and then he established that walnut root bark added to a water culture would cause wilting and browning of roots of tomato within 48 hours. Hmm. And that root bark added to the soil would also cause poor growth. But soil just taken from walnut alone underneath a walnut tree caused no effect. So this guy concluded there must be some toxic principle which may be initially insoluble in water or may alter chemically once it leaves the roots. And he surmised that the likely chemical was juglone. So he and other researchers then later on suggested that juglone, and that's kind of an orangey compound isolated from the leaf litter and walnut hulls, was responsible for the damage. Hmm. Now in 1948, the USDA issued a release assuring the public that eastern black walnuts were harmless. But they really failed to convince the public, and this <laughs> belief has persisted. Hmm. So the listener that contacted us, he said, would you guys do an episode on black walnut looking into the myth that black walnut is allelopathic. Interesting, okay. So I started looking into it, okay? Now so, I'm, I'm really curious to find out if it really is a myth. Right. Yeah. So there is a lot of... I feel like he's listening. He's like, I hope they didn't go to the dark side. <laughs> so there is a lack of substantial direct supporting evidence. Now, throughout the 50s, there was experimental field testing and there were little to no negative effects seen. <laughs> Experimentation moved to the lab where jaglone was applied to germinating seeds and seedlings, and that was found to cause stunting, wilting, and sometimes death of plant tissues. They had to have controlled the like concentration. So the mode of the action of jaglone is it's still unclear. I'm not sure like how it works, but it's thought to disrupt photosynthesis and respiration, and then also hmm. interfere with water uptake. Okay. So. There's really two papers that I could find, and one kind of feeds off another, hmm. that kind of take apart this myth. Not completely, mm -hmm. okay? So we don't want to say it's a complete myth, all right? right? But here's what they say. They say that there's all these experiments, but no explanations. Inconsistent results have been the bane of juglone allelopathy research. Right. For every report of toxicity in a species, another will find no effect. And these researchers kind of questioning the standard knowledge, they point out a number of problems with the assumptions in the trials. So they say, okay, even though juglone is a highly toxic chemical, it's not found in intact tissues of eastern black walnut. They contain a non-toxic precursor called hydrojuglone, which gets oxidized in the soil to become juglone. Oh, so juglone's not really in the plant. Exactly. It's only found outside of the plant. Right. Oh, Most okay. hydrojuglone is contained in the roots and hulls of the walnuts, and there's virtually none in the wood. Hmm. Many of the researchers that found a connection, they use artificial experimental methods to test for allelopathy. For instance, they use soilless media and extractions of juglone from walnut tissues. Those things don't occur in nature. Hmm. Allelopathic responses are enhanced when potting media is used instead of soil, and that might be because of the increased permeability of the media compared to soil in a natural setting. 
The lack of field test evidence to support the lab results, this has spurred critics to insist that experimental testing has to include a functional soil system that more closely mimics what happens in nature. But they note several conditions that, that possibly could account for the lack of positive field test results. So one of these is Jaglone undergoes chemical, physical, and biological degradation in the soil. So organic matter and clay particles can bind Jaglone and reduce its movement in the soil. So it's not <laughs> gonna get around. In well-drained and aerated soils, they have a healthy community of soil microbes that break down Jaglone. So in other words, Jaglone doesn't persist in soils with high microbial activity. So what's suggested is that first, researchers have to accept that lab-based approaches that isolate Jaglone from the natural environment can't really determine whether allelopathy occurs in nature. Hmm. Second, Jaglone, if we're gonna accept that black walnut is really allelopathic, Jaglone has to accumulate to phytotoxic levels, toxic to plants, <laughs> and reach a target plant to be of ecological relevance. We can't just say, oh, it's there. <laughs> this may pose an insurmountable problem for Jaglone work. While walnut trees release large quantities of Jaglone into the rhizosphere, where the roots are, mm -hmm. very little reaches the bulk soil and thereby other plant roots. And finally, researchers have to show that chemicals contributed by specific plants are primarily responsible for growth inhibition and that it's not due to competition for soil resources, excessive shade, or any other environmental factors. Like if you think about it, a lot of these people that say, oh, tomatoes don't do well under black walnut trees. Well, why the hell are you planting tomatoes under a black walnut tree? <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you, you don't plant tomatoes in a, a shady environment, right? You yeah, that's- them to do well. That's kind of a weird thing to suddenly bring up. Right. I mean, not, not that it's weird for you to bring up, but it's a thing to bring up that suddenly I'm realizing is weird. Right. Yeah, that's... So it's hard to really say for sure. So despite all this lack of confirming evidence, there's still tons of websites, cooperative extension publications, and research articles claiming that Eastern Black Walnut has allelopathic effects on garden and landscape plants. I just typed in and did a search asking to Google, are Eastern Black Walnuts allelopathic? The first thing that came up is a cooperative extension article from Illinois that said, Eastern black walnuts are one of the best known allelopathic plants. And I'll point out there, they said best known. Best known. <laughs> Not best documented, yeah. right? A lot of publications cite older extension publications that contain lists of quote unquote sensitive plants and tolerant plants hmm. to Eastern black walnut. But a lot of these publications just seem to reference each other. Yeah. It's like they're in a little echo chamber. And yeah. one of the papers that kind of questioned this whole thing that said two publications that are often referenced by studies are not experimental, but simply observational. They just correlate the presence of walnut trees with damage to other species, but they don't confirm a causative relationship. Mm -hmm. So in these two publications, you're not even gonna find them in print anymore. One, oh. a researcher tried to find it and he couldn't even find that it ever existed. It may be an <laughs> error that it existed. What? And one, he contacted the Cooperative Extension office and they said, that's 25 years out of date. So we don't even publish those anymore. Oh. All right, so. It's funny, I look over, that's not a black walnut. <laughs> no. Nope. <laughs> Cause I was like, I was like that one right there. I'm like, there's a honeysuckle growing right out of the base of it, but no, it's not a black walnut. So, yeah. So one of the papers I used by a researcher named Willis, this was in the Allelopathy Journal. Mm. This is how he summed it all up. 
He said, while the genus Jaglans provides what are probably the most widely accepted examples of allelopathic plants, it must be concluded that there is still no unambiguous demonstration of its effect. What is clear with walnuts is that there's well-known, if not well-documented, interaction with several plant species. Jaglone is not particularly mobile in the soil, and it appears that it's readily absorbed by soil organic matter, nearby roots, or bacteria. It has also been argued that as jaglone is rapidly metabolized by soil bacteria, it's unlikely to ever reach concentrations in soil, and consequently in roots, sufficient to cause any appreciable effect. Despite attempts, no one has yet to demonstrate that jaglone is actually taken up by plant roots. There is certainly too much evidence to conclude that walnut has no chemical effect on neighboring plants. However, it certainly remains for more and better work to be done. <laughs> so there's something going on, but it is definitely not to the level that most sources out there say. It's just, you type in, Allelopathy black walnuts, and it's just accepted as gospel that <laughs> black walnut kills lots of other plants. Yeah. So it just doesn't seem to be happening to the level in nature that people think it does. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So that's the episode. Yeah. As part of our wrap up, I do want to mention a follow up to our last episode on hellbenders. Okay. So our cool. friend Zach Kava got in touch with us. We mentioned yeah. him in the episode, mm-hmm. and he got in touch to clarify one point we made during the episode. We said that hellbenders are the largest salamander in North America. So he said, now, while they're frequently called that, it's a bit more complicated. So he said the two-toed, how would you say that? Oh, Amphiuma? Amphiuma? Yeah, I guess. That's my (laughs) guess. I don't know. (laughs) It can get significantly larger than hellbenders. 116 centimeters versus 74 centimeters. I should have figured out the inches for that. (laughs) (laughs) that. That is a pretty big difference, though. But from what I'm reading, and this is Zach talking, hellbenders do way more, though I've seen some amphi- Amphiuma? <laughs> Amphiuma, I think, would rival the largest hellbenders in weight. Hmm. Okay, so how about we just... Say they're one of the... <laughs> retroactively say they're one of the largest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one All of right. the, if not the largest, <laughs> yeah. uh, by weight. So I did also want to give a shout out to the Skyway Park Conservancy. They gave us a shout out on Instagram. Oh, cool. A nonprofit organization dedicated to the creation, use, and enjoyment of Skyway Park in Jersey City, New Jersey. So check them out at skywaypark.org. Cool. We also wanted to give a shout out to a family that have been one of our longest patrons, the Hebranks. Yeah. Longtime listeners will know that name. They are local. And the two kids that are members of that family, Sam and Maisie, they have actually started a young birders club here in Western New York. Oh, cool. And I brought my daughter, Violet, on a walk they did back in March (laughs) to look for the woodcock. Okay. And I have to say I was super honored because they mentioned several times that most of the information they got, they got from our episode. Wow. They had actually like, maybe once or twice kind of looked at me to confirm something and I'm just thinking, I don't remember. Because <laughs> you'll back me up. Once we do an episode, you like immediately forget oh, yeah, all yeah. the research. It, it happens, yeah. But these two kids, and, and guys, I'm sorry if I get it wrong, I think they're maybe like 10 and 8. Mm-hmm. They led this hike with That's about 15, so impressive. people. Yeah. And I got to say, it was one of the best Woodcock walks I have ever been on, including the ones that I've led. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we got incredible views of the woodcock doing its spring dance. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Great job, Sam and Maisie. 
You are an inspiration to us here at the Field Guides too. Yeah, for sure. So folks, if you are local, or even if you're not local, check out their website. It's WNYYBC.org, the Western New York Young Birders Club. Nice. They're doing great work. Yeah. And you are gonna talk about yeah. our iTunes reviews. Yeah, so I wanna thank our newest patrons. So thank you, Nathan Gennardo, Dwayne Hook, Adam, Andrew Cannon, Roy Boyle, and Kate. And I think Kate, if I'm not wrong, I think Kate is our patron. I saw they were from New Zealand. Wow, what? <laughs> I know. It's amazing to think someone in New Zealand is listening to Yeah, us. that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if you can't afford to financially support the podcast, we definitely are super thankful for reviews on iTunes. So uh, I want to thank our newest reviewers. So good 1112 Mike at the Outside Chronicles, who I haven't looked into, but... Oh, yeah, I traded a message with Mike. Mm -hmm. So he does a lot of great work here in the, the hiking community here yeah. in Western New York. <laughs> and check out Outside Chronicles. I'm sure if you type that in. Oh, uh, Outside Chronicles. Yeah. Okay. He's on social media. I should have known by website. his name, Mike at Outside Chronicles, because yeah. that sounds so familiar, but yeah. Yeah, he does hikes and he has a program, the Western New York Hiking Challenge, where <laughs> he raises money for local conservation groups. He does great work. Yeah, we also have... Now, I've never seen an emoji used in a name before, but this is chick emoji, like, <laughs> no, well, like a chicken emoji and a lizard emoji. <laughs> also, uh, thank you, uh, Holo or Holo Grandpa and the Brain. And this one I actually liked because the subject was hello. <laughs> and the review was tap, tap, tap. <laughs> but they gave five stars, which was very nice of them, but I get it. Uh, <laughs> Hawk Car. And, and finally, thank you, Anna Mariposa. So yeah. thank you guys so much. We always appreciate the reviews. And I do have to say that those last batch of reviews, I mean, people always say nice things, but th yeah. those last bunch of reviews, they had very, very nice things to say. Means a lot to Steve and I. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially the person who said, hey, someone needs to uh, pay these guys to do the podcast on a regular basis. <laughs> right. I am fully behind that. <laughs> yeah. I think the trick is me not being... Uh... A student anymore. <laughs> but what if someone was willing to, you know, pay you... Uh, uh... Enough to quit being a student? Yeah. yeah, right. If I could have a full-time career, 100%. But <laughs> Maybe someday. Yeah. Yeah. So, folks, one thing we like to do, we like to give a shout-out in every episode to our, our newest patrons. And we also like to specifically name our top patrons as part of every episode. And lately, we've been having my daughter do it at the end of the episode. So please stick around for the end of the episode to hear my daughter give a shout out to all of our top patrons. We really appreciate it, folks. Yeah, and thanks to Violet. <laughs> yeah. I think she likes doing it. <laughs> all right, so that wraps it up for us. So we want to remind parents to get those kids outside, let them get muddy, let them get dirty, let them flip over rocks and logs. And if you're someone without kids, hey, get yourself outside as well. <laughs> yeah, it's about that time of year. Yeah. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yep, see you guys. All right, folks, so we wanted to thank listener Mark Carroll for giving us the idea for this episode and providing the paper on which much of the episode was based. Thank you, Mark, for taking the time to send that along to us. And now we have Violet here. She is going to read off the names of our top patrons. Take it away, Violet. Eric, Alyssa, the Hebranks, Mary, Todd, Callie, Sean C., Rich, Jessica, Rochelle, the drunk phytologist, Orange Julianne, Diane, we named the dog Indy, Ken, Jonathan A, Brandon, Quixote, Robert P, Max, Jake, Melissa and Dusty Arizona, Celia, Kelly, Sarah, Andy, Helen, MD, Judy, Ben, Lauren, Jane, 
Doodle Dude 82, Gail and Mac, Kazzies, Jeff, Bruce, Esther, John W., Bethany, Rob, Hannah. Well done, Violet. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and thank you, patrons. Steve and I appreciate all of your support. And we will see you all next time.